Hi everyone, it's Barry Hillam. Before this segment on Revelation chapter 18 begins, I have a quick correction to issue. You're about to hear me say that there's a single angelic speaker that takes us through this chapter from verses 1 to verses 24. Uh, the speakers actually change in this verse, or excuse me, in this chapter. In verse 4, the speaker becomes a voice from heaven. That seems to take us up to verse 21, where John himself describes the actions of a mighty angel. Whether that's the same angel as the one that we begin with is not clear. And then that is the angel that we end with uh, as we're taken through verse 24. So wanted to offer that quick correction to thank you for listening and to let you know that there's much more to come. And I look forward to starting the Book of Mormon with you. So um, have a wonderful day and a happy new year. And I'll talk to you soon for Revelation chapter 19. And very soon after that, uh, we'll be starting the Book of Mormon. All right. Bye-bye now. Revelation chapter 18 builds upon the imagery that is uh, presented to us in Revelation chapter 17 that teaches us in depth about the nature and the reach of Babylon. And in Revelation chapter 18, we come to this angelic announcement in verse 2 that says, Babylon the Great is fallen. Now this chapter is essentially a monologue from this angel, which it says in verse 1, came down from heaven having great power, so much so as it says in verse 1 that the earth was lightened with his glory. This angel tells us then in verse 2 that Babylon the Great is fallen, discusses that in more detail, and then goes into what are sometimes described as three dirges, and, and these span verses 9 through 19. And uh, we'll talk about each of these in some detail and read them. And the angel speaks from the perspective of the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and also maritime traders. Those, as it says in verse 19, that were made rich, all that had ships in the sea. And each of these three groups are lamenting the fall of Babylon. We then find the angel pausing from his monologue and actually acting something out in verse 21. And this forecasts something that actually happens in the next chapter. So we'll talk about that. And then we come back to the final two verses in this chapter where the angel um, ends this monologue by making it clear that Babylon's time has come. With that introduction, then, we go back to the first section. So verse 1 says, And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. The end of this verse is amazingly similar to Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, which says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. It's an interesting way, then, of describing the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel, or the glory of this angel here in verse 1, to talk about how that, that, that glory 
uh, lit the whole earth or, or shined upon the earth, so it's the reflection of that body from that glory. Then we come to this announcement by the angel in verse 2, this thing which, as we will soon see in this chapter, seemed unimaginable to those who had this illicit relationship with Babylon, but something that seemed inevitable and does seem inevitable to us today as students of the scriptures and as followers of the Lord's true church. And that announcement goes like this in verse 2, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of unclean and hateful bird, of every unclean and hateful bird. So it's a dwelling place. It has become a dwelling place of unsavory things, to say the least, devils, uh, every foul spirit. And then this image of it being a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. There, there are Old Testament references to birds and how they um, have an association with, um, um, with, with forces that prey upon the souls of men, like a bird of prey would, um, or, or a vulture might um, circle around the carcass. This makes Isaiah's prophecy about Babylon even more interesting. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 20 through 22, uh, because we can see the fulfillment of this prophecy in the absolute um, absence of life in the ancient city of Babylon. But as is often the case, um, Isaiah may have a dual fulfillment in this prophecy because when you, when you think about uh, the way John is describing uh, Babylon as, as being a cage for birds of this sort. Uh, listen to Isaiah's language. He says, It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. It seems plain enough, then, that that verse uh, is speaking of this ancient city of Babylon, which is uh, w which we know was some 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad in Iraq, and it has basically been uninhabited ever since. However, these remaining verses say, But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. So that, do, that passage does make you wonder if Isaiah was also intimating spiritual Babylon and its ultimate end, and the way in which that Babylon's days would not be prolonged either. And so here we are at the time when the days of spiritual Babylon, according to John, will no longer be prolonged. Now the angel provides a short summary in verse 3 of why it is that um, Babylon has an illicit relationship with these uh, merchants and nations of the earth that says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. 
and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. The metaphor of fornication especially makes sense when we think about it as a sin that comes from lust. And there's an element of seduction there as well. And this is most certainly symbolic of the seduction of materialism and of worldly wealth that really tends to permeate all classes of people from rich to poor. The phrase, the abundance of her delicacies, is quite interesting at the end of verse 3. Many of those will be recounted later in this chapter through the dirge of the merchants of the earth. I think it's worth pointing out here before moving forward that there is triumph in this as this angel makes the announcement that Babylon the Great has fallen. But the tragedy in this is also apparent. I, I don't think it would be right to say that this angel is gloating so much, but instead um, this, this is that uh, this is an angel with glory that is reflecting the righteous indignation of God, but there, there is no uh, tone of, of gloating. Then, as though it's a second witness to what has been said so far, in verse 4 we read, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. There's a sense of immediacy in this. Um, This same tone and much of this same verbiage is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 133, verses 5, 7, and 14. I'll read those. Go ye out from Babylon, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Then verse 7. Yea, verily I say unto you again, the time has come when the voice of the Lord is unto you. Go ye out from Babylon. Gather ye out from among the nations, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And verse 14, Go ye out from among the nations, even from Babylon, from the midst of wickedness, which is spiritual Babylon. When you think of Babylon in the context of fornication and the the seductive nature of the great whore of the earth that was described in the previous chapter, It's useful to remember that uh, Babylon and the abundance of her delicacies, as it says in verse 3, has universal appeal to the natural man, and all of us uh, have have the impulse to be attracted to the abundance of these delicacies. And so it it behooves all of us to run, like Joseph from Potiphar's wife, (laughs) from Babylon. The Doctrine and Covenants section 64, verse 24, makes it clear that it's a place that we don't want to be uh, or we will be destroyed with it. Uh, That verse says, For after today cometh the burning. This is speaking after the manner of the Lord. For verily I say, tomorrow all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And I will burn them up, for I am the Lord of hosts, and I will not spare any that remain in Babylon. This final phrase in verse five, uh, uh, verse four rather, is really curious to me too because it says, "Be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues." 
Now who would wittingly or knowingly uh, partake of someone's plagues? It seems very undesirable, to say the least. I think that tells us, as we go through this chapter and based upon what we learned in the previous chapter, that the delicacies and the material rewards that are and the wealth that are associated with Babylon come with very heavy strings attached. And this verse 4 gets to the heart of what those strings are attached to their plagues. Here's a quote from a modern-day prophet who understood all of this. This is Elder Richard G. Scott. Much of the world is being engulfed in a rising river of degenerate filth. With the abandonment of virtue, righteousness, personal integrity, traditional marriage, and family life. Despite pockets of evil, the world overall is majestically beautiful. Filled with many good and sincere people, God has provided a way to live in this world and not be contaminated by the degrading pressures evil agents spread throughout it. You can live a virtuous, productive, righteous life by following the plan of protection created by your Father in Heaven, His plan of happiness. Now this voice in verses 5 and 6 tell us something interesting about the uh, punishment that will be meted out to Babylon. It says in verse 5, For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled to her double. There's a theme here in a way, I think, and it's that the iniquity that and, and, and the destruction that has been wrought by Satan and his followers in this ongoing war uh, throughout the book of Revelation and that's happening throughout Scripture is something that has been happening while we have been away from the presence of God. But when he does return, when the Lord returns, as we as we find in subsequent chapters in Revelation, it's all over. There is no more contest. Uh, the time will have come when he will triumph in an ultimate way, and when he finally does figuratively um, enter the scene of battle, it, it is well and truly over for the dragon and his followers. So we'll see that. In this instance, however, he is still remote from the scene. And so we find in verse 6 that Babylon's sins have reached unto heaven. And at this point, God hath remembered her iniquities, as it says. We're then finding that the justice that, uh, that is being doled out here is, is double the iniquities. Um, the reasons for that... Um, probably have Old Testament precedent. Another possible interpretation is that this has reference both to the sins of commission of Babylon and of omission. Here's a passage from Exodus that talks about double uh, that shows us that maybe this is the ultimate fulfillment of that. This is Exodus chapter 22, so this is not long after the law has been dispensed from the mountain in the form of the Ten Commandments. 
Um, and we read in verses 4, 7, and 9. Verse 4, If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Verse 7, If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. And verse 9, For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. So this passage, of course, in verse 6 is consistent with that idea. Before leaving these verses, I, I think it, it just um, it, it bears repeating that it's natural for people to think that their sins and iniquities are hidden, uh, that they're being done in secret. Uh, but this is a reminder that our sins don't go undetected by God. Um, as, as the um, Institute Manual says, though their consequences may not all come immediately. This sense of sinning while you're away from the presence of God or, or in secret so that you think that no authority uh, detects you, detects you <laughs> is, is reflected here in the language of verse 7 as well. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, I am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. So, so she's denying the reality of a God in heaven here who is there and does have requirements. And uh, that reality cannot be escaped from, and there will be a day of reckoning, as we're finding here. Verse 8 says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. So uh, the plague shall come in one day. Uh, in verse 10 we read that in one hour is thy judgment come. There's another reference to in one hour in verse 17. So all three of these expressions seem to suggest that, um, that it's inconceivable to her followers that something so mighty could fall so, so quickly. This phrase that she shall utterly be burned with fire is of great interest as well. Uh, here's commentary by Richard Draper. Her death shall be swift in one day and full. She shall be utterly burned with fire. Her fate is significant. John's harlot is no commoner. As has been noted earlier, she represents a priestly class. The Levitical punishment for adultery or harlotry for the daughter of a priest was burning, and that comes out of Leviticus 21.9. For the non-priestly class, the less torturous punishments of strangulation or stoning were employed. Babylon as apostate, even idolatrous religion, deserves her fate. Here is the first dirge in verses 9 and 10, where this voice from heaven is going to quote the kings of the earth. It says, And the kings of the earth, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her, 
when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. It's hard for these kings to imagine something so mighty and so seemingly stable to fall so quickly. It reminds Book of Mormon readers, perhaps, of the confidence that Laman and Lemuel placed in the city of Jerusalem. And we know that at that time Jerusalem was in such a state of wickedness. Here's the next dirge. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. <laughs> so we see the reason for the weeping and the mourning. It's not for the welfare of anyone who is dying. It's because they're no longer transacting. Verse 12, The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thion wood. That can be translated as citron as well. Kind of a, kind of a lemon-like citrus tree. Uh, citron wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble. Verse 13, and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and the souls of men. And we notice chillingly how souls of men are just added among all of these other merchant commodities. This certainly reveals the satanic perspective regarding the souls of men, that they can be regarded as possessions. Uh, we can contrast that with that great statement in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 18, verse 10, Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. This expression regarding the souls of men can be taken more specifically as well. Uh, Here's something that Richard Draper says about this. Finally, she offered as slaves the very souls of men. The word translated slaves is literally bodies. It's the Greek word soma. Babylon seeks to reduce people to flesh that can be bought and sold for profit. In the conquest, men are dehumanized by the consorts of Babylon. This idea is brought out by the last phrase, souls of men. This is an old Hebrew phrase depicting men as little more than human livestock. This last commodity shows the spiritual depth of Babylon's wickedness, the sold human beings, both old and young, male and female. There are a couple additional <laughs> interpretations of this um, in addition to, to the, the abominable and terrible practice of human trafficking. And that is the way in which um, materialism can be enslaving. Uh, here's something very interesting out of Second Nephi, chapter 26, verse 10. And when these things have passed away, a speedy destruction cometh unto my people. For notwithstanding the pains of my soul, I have seen it. Wherefore, I know that it shall come to pass, and they sell themselves for naught, for for the reward of their pride and their foolishness they shall reap destruction. For because they yield unto the devil and choose works of darkness rather than light, therefore they must go down to hell. Another way to interpret the bartering or the marketing or the commodifying of um, human souls 
is to think about the way that false churches have been built up by Babylon to claim the souls of mankind. Here's something in Mormon chapter 8, verse 32. Yea, it shall come in a day when there shall be churches built up that shall say, Come unto me, and for your money you shall be forgiven of your sins. Moving on then with the lament of these merchants, they say in verse 14, And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. It would um, inconvenience anyone to have their material possessions taken away. But we're talking here about a merchant class who is lamenting the downfall of Babylon, not just because their mode of living has been threatened, although that's definitely a part of it, but it's because they set their hearts on these things, and that's quite clear as we read this. These merchants are described well by Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 30. But woe unto the rich who are rich as to the things of the world, for because they are rich, they despise the poor, and they persecute the meek, and their hearts are upon their treasures. Wherefore their treasure is their God, and behold, their treasure shall perish with them also. Doctrine and Covenants section 56 verse 16 says something similar. Woe unto you, rich men, that will not give your substance to the poor, for your riches will canker your souls. And this shall be your lamentation in the day of visitation, and of judgment, and of indignation. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and my soul is not saved. So that has its own dirge inside of it. Here's an interesting warning by President Harold B. Lee. This was in uh, 1973 when he said, We are tested, we are tried, we are going through some of the severest tests today, and we don't realize perhaps the severity of the tests that we're going through. Today we are basking in the lap of luxury, the like of which we've never seen before in the history of the world. It would seem that probably this is the most severe test of any test that we've ever had in the history of the church. And uh, that's um, quite a long time ago, some 46 years ago, uh, as I record this. And um, he's not talking about a future time. He was talking about that time. Uh, our, our, Our present time, of course, is far more that way. His use of the word severe and the word the, the use of the word trial, I think, is, is interesting. Um, well, I think, actually, he uses the word test, doesn't he? But the, usually we would think of a test of this sort as being terribly unpleasant and difficult. Um, but, but this type of um, test that he's talking about is, is in the strict sense of a test, where our response is being tested to the abundance that surrounds us. So there's much to think about that, uh, much to think about there, and and we don't want to be like these merchants that are bemoaning the downfall of Babylon. And then the the, the end of this uh, dirge of the merchant says, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. 
Now a new dirge continues in verse 17 and extends to the end of verse 19. And this is, this is of traders of the sea. It says, And every shipmaster, and all the company in ships, and sailors, and as many as trade by sea, stood afar off, and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads, and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in by the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. Again, the reference to one hour. They never could have imagined something happening to a city so mighty. And now this voice turns and speaks directly and says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. So this is an interesting contrast to the dirges that we just went through. And here's some commentary by Richard Draper on this. The command of the angel to rejoice over her, O heavens, and the saints and apostles and prophets, because God passed your judgment upon her, unquote, stands in contrast to the lamentation of the men of the world that we just covered through verses 9 through 19. Twice, John has intimated that the prayers of the saints greatly influenced the time of the judgment. Uh, and, and I could pause there and, and, and remind, uh, we, we, we can be reminded of the times when we've talked about prayers reaching the altar. Okay, then Brother Draper says, here he indicates that more was going on than mere timing. The whore played the role of the great judge against the saints. Now the tables are turned, and those the harlot once wrongfully judged become the judges. All this, quite just according to divine, all this is just quite all this is quite just, according to divine law. God had set down two laws that apply, the law of bloodshed and the law of the spiteful witness. According to the first, the life of a man is required if he slays a fellow man. That comes out of Genesis chapter 9, verses 5-6. through six. According to the second, when a witness is found guilty of perjury, he receives the punishment he desired for his fellow. That's out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16-19. through 19. Here God allows the saints, apostles, and prophets to pass sentence on the harlot. Of course, based on their own experience, they find her guilty of both perjury and murder. Because she brought forth false accusations and then passed the death sentence on holy men and women, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. She must forfeit her life. Now as this vision continues for John, so far he's heard from the voice of an angel, then another voice from heaven, and now he watches an angel do something that is symbolic. Verse 21 says, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So this is very vivid. We can imagine this millstone being thrown into the sea by this angel and watching the sea swallow this millstone and seeing that millstone disappear entirely. Um, that certainly is a sense in which the earth can swallow something up. We talked about that in Revelation chapter 12 
when there was a contest between the glorious woman and the, and the dragon. This is an image that Jeremiah seems also to have seen. And incredibly, he says the following in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 61 through 64. And Jeremiah said to Sarah, When thou comest to Babylon, and shalt see, and shalt read all of these words, then shalt thou say, O Lord, thou hast spoken against this place, to cut it off, that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but that it shall be desolate forever. And it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it, and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. And thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Uh, Really remarkable uh, to read and to consider that passage. It's also worth saying that this, and it's a bit of a spoiler, but that this forecasts what will happen in the next chapter. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, when it says that the beast was taken, and with him also the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, uh, and these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. What's implied there, of course, is that they sunk in that lake, and that it swallows them up. So again, after this demonstration by this angel, when casting this millstone into the sea, um, there, there, there is an explanation that follows. So now I'll read the full explanation. At the end of verse 21, it says, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, for thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived." And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. And there is the final indictment. We read this really interesting word sorceries in verse 23 as well. And that certainly has modern day application. When we think back to the commentary provided in um, Revelation chapter 9 on this word and its relationship to drugs and um, pharmacotherapeutics that are misused. Uh, In this sense, sorceries most certainly are a means for deceit. And that's what it says here in verse 23, For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in this, the pursuit of instant pleasure and then the addiction that follows, uh, we can become very disconnected from our ultimate desires and move towards our own ruin. Back to this indictment then that the blood of the prophets of the saints uh, were found in her. There seems to be a way in which those who were killed 
and whose souls were claimed, that that truth in and of itself has a way of decrying uh, and and of, of speaking by itself. Uh, this is also referred to more generally as the blood of the innocent. There's a passage in the Book of Mormon when Alma and Amulek, um, they do not stretch forth their hand, and Alma explains why. Uh, in, in verse 11 of Alma 14, it says, But Alma said unto him, The Spirit constraineth me, that I must not stretch forth mine hand, for behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. And he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. So the blood of the innocent in that passage is personified to the degree that it has the ability to cry against them. And there's something similar happening here. This reminds us that for all of his tender mercy, uh, God is a God of justice. He says this in Doctrine and Covenants section 1 verse 10, Unto the day when the Lord shall come to recompense unto every man according to his work, and measure to every man according to the measure which he has measured to his fellow man. And another passage that gives us this idea of the blood of the innocent crying forth and acting as a judgment and as a testimony against uh, those who have slain them. This is in Doctrine and Covenants section 109, verse 49. O Lord, how long wilt thou suffer this people to bear this affliction? And the cries of their innocent ones to ascend up in thine ears, and their blood come up in testimony before thee, and not make a display of thy testimony in their behalf. Here's the last one I'll read, and this is from 3 Nephi chapter 9, when the voice of the Lord is speaking to the people uh, during a time of great justice. This is verse 5, And behold, that great city Moronihah have I covered with earth, and the inhabitants thereof, to hide their iniquities and their abominations from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come any more unto me against them. And so we come to the end of this chapter, to the time when Babylon is finally destroyed. The victory that John has envisioned during several uh, interludes throughout this uh, account of the war between good and evil in the book of Revelation is, is soon to come. And uh, this is a sign of that. Here are some concluding remarks by uh, Richard Draper that I'll end with uh, in this discussion regarding Babylon. He says, The story of the Tower of Babel is no mere myth. It provides historical background for understanding man's rebellion against God. The most impressive symbol of the Babylonian religion was its ziggurats, of which some ruins stand even to this day. As noted earlier in this work, they reveal the quest of base men to compete with, God, to compete with the gods by erecting colossal buildings, 
counterfeit holy mountains where men could pretend to know the mysteries of God while promulgating unholy laws and base practices. These mountain-like towers stand in defiance of true faith and emphasize the growing gulf between God and the natural man. The Book of Mormon testifies of God's wrath upon these people, and we can read about that in Ether chapter 1, verse 33. And what caused it? The arrogant Babylonians combined purely sensual and material principles with the lofty striving within the soul of man. Out of this grew the principle of spiritual fornication. Men mistook lust for joy, sought happiness through passion, and pursued security through materialism. The bit of graffiti, He Who Dies With the Most Toys Wins, could have been written as easily in Babylon as in New York or Las Vegas. Today, many still seek to find heaven through drugs, lust, money, success, or power. People continue to try to escape the deadly round of daily life through material and immoral means. The result merely mires them more deeply in the muck that spews from the pit in the abyss. God has provided a solution. Flee Babylon. The command demands a complete severing of relations. God allows no association whatsoever. There is good reason. Babylon is not to be converted, but destroyed. Quote, we would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her. Unquote. That's Jeremiah 51.9. Any that linger in Babylon will be taken with her plagues. Quote, for after today cometh the burning, and I will not spare any that remain in Babylon. Unquote. Doctrine and Covenants 64 and 24, which we read earlier. Therefore the cry is, Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon, which is out of Zechariah chapter 2, verse 7.